All right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We have a very special guest this time, Dr. Bhattacharya. He is a rheumatologist from Australia. Also have Dr. Baraki back with us. Uh, what's going on, Austin? Uh, doing great. I uh, was just talking to Sham a little bit here about how I got a uh, attending physician from my hospital to come and uh, get coached with the main barbell lift today. So that's always good to do. Yeah, and I, I, uh, his fiance joined him. Yes, yeah, she's uh, I think either a PT or a PTA, and they're both wanting to learn about training. And as she was telling me about some of the patients she's worked with with uh, Parkinson's disease and stuff like that. So um, I think it's going to do some good things. You know, that's a dangerous game bringing uh, your fiance with you who has previously trained at all. Because what if they lift more than you initially? I'm just saying, like, that's just a, it's a dangerous game. Uh, Sham, how's it going, man? I, what time is it over there? I feel like it's either so, like middle of the night or yeah, no. <laughs> we, we've got this right this time, man. Um, things are going great. Uh, it's currently 11 o'clock uh, in the morning on Monday, the 24th of July. And it's actually a lovely winter's day outside, surprisingly. Um, you guys must have brought the sunshine. It's a good uh, thing. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So you're in Mel I'm, Melbourne. I'm in Melbourne, in Australia. That's right. Yes, yes. Okay. So it's the frozen tundra there. Uh, it's also <laughs> Sham's also coming to us from the future. Apparently, it's tomorrow already. So oh, no. <laughs> okay, so so Sean, let's uh, we'll just get we'll go through your um, kind of background first. So, tell us tell us about your tell us about you. You're a rheumatologist. What does that even mean? Correct. Um, yes. So yeah, so I'm uh, I'm an attending physician in uh, rheumatology and internal medicine. Um, rheumatology, just in case there may be some people out there who don't know what that is, is the uh, branch of medicine that deals with arthritis and connective tissue diseases and that sort of thing. Basically, diseases of the immune system and musculoskeletal system. Um, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. I don't do any cutting, but I deal with the medical management of things like osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis and various other kind of conditions. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm dual trained with internal medicine, so um, I did my, uh, all my undergraduate and postgraduate medicine in Melbourne. Um, I've had some stints overseas. I've worked in the UK, um, in London, and a brief stint at the John Radcliffe Infirmary in Oxford. And I spent some time in the US, uh, mainly doing observership stuff um, at Cedar sinai Hospital in, uh, in Los Angeles many, many years ago now. Um, great city, LA. I don't know if I could live there long term, but uh, it is a great city for, for what it's worth. Great fun place to visit. Um, can confirm that LA is nice for short-term stay, but yes, <laughs> yeah, I think I think you have a unique perspective on that. Yes, um, yeah. Um, Austin asked me earlier, you know, in terms of lifting and that sort of thing, how how long have I been training for and uh, that sort of stuff? Um, that's a great question. I'm trying to think of how to answer that question. Look, I've been so I. <laughs> As a bit of disclosure, I entered med school quite early. I was 16 when I started. And here the, uh, the medical <laughs> curriculum is um, uh, six years of undergrad when I did it. And then uh, a whole bunch of postgraduate training, uh, including what you call residency and things, until you get to being an attending. So I've been attending now for about eight years, I think. Um, and I finished my med school back in 2001. So it was, it's a hell of a lot of time uh, in between the, to put in some yards. Um, so the, the reason for that is because I've been training or lifting weights in some capacity since I was 16, basically since I started university and, uh, got lucky in that instead of doing the usual progress where, you know, I trained to get as jacked as I could, which is always a fantastic goal. And I want to do that. Um, I got introduced, uh, to the squat bench press, deadlift and overhead press really early in the piece. Um, reading, uh, some stuff by Stuart McRobert, um, you know, talking about uh, you know how to how to lift. Uh, these these are the way to go. And I actually got I started off doing twenty rep squats and twenty rep deadlifts and that sort of stuff, which was a great way not to make much progress, but it was a good way to kind of get some form done. That that wasn't too bad. Um, in terms of proper training, though, um, after my first child was born, I kind of came around to starting strength, having not trained you know trained intermittently in that time, um, and started to do something resembling a butchered linear progression, which I managed okay. Uh, for a while, and then I did the time-honored tradition of cocking up the transition into intermediate programming and kind of spun my wheels for about two years until I met you, yep. Dr. Feigenbaum. Yeah. Uh, you came down to Melbourne, and I kind of always, I, I'd read a lot of what you'd written and liked kind of the way you, you approach things, and obviously very impressed with your lifts and that sort of stuff, and the same goes for you, Austin. Um, oh, thank and, you. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean it. I've got better things to do than blow, blow smoke up your ass, man. Well, if that's not an, uh, a huge vote of confidence for barbell medicine programming, I don't know uh, what is. So I'll have to, okay, I'll have to pay you later. Like a $100 check 
right? <laughs> yeah, hundred Australia Australian dollars, Australian dollars. Of course, not. U.S. dollars, man. Come you, on, oh, sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, all good. I, I want to put out that there's absolutely no financial kind of disclosure here. It's, it's all good. All oh, right. Yeah, I forgot. Now we'll have to start doing financial uh, conflict of interest. Um, okay, so Sean, uh, that's a good introduction, telling people about rheumatology, your training background. Um, you know, I think just to overall clarify. On your normal day-to-day, take us through uh, what it's like. Is it mostly inpatient stuff? So inside the hospital, is it outpatient? Are you seeing people in the clinic? Um, take us through your uh, your normal day. Sure. Yeah. So that's uh, that's a great question. Um, I'm lucky to have quite quite varied days because my week is basically a, a 50-50 split of internal medicine and rheumatology stuff, and it's a good mix of inpatient and outpatient sort of stuff. Um, I do a lot of perioperative stuff for orthopedic surgeons and urologists and things. So I do pre-op consults uh, in my rooms and then see the patients uh, through the operative phase and post-operatively and so forth. Uh, And rheumatology stuff is, yeah, uh, very similar. I have, in Australia, we have uh, obviously public and private uh, systems, which I think may be similar to what you have in the US as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I have uh, two public hospital appointments at two kind of different uh, locations. And uh, a range of private hospital appointments where I see consults, mainly as inpatient kind of things. Um, it's there's a lot of call, a lot of uh, teaching, registrar supervision, or uh, res- what you call resident uh, residency supervision, and that sort of thing. Um, and I do a lot of stuff with teaching outside of that because uh, I examine for the College of Physicians, which is a very busy kind of time of year at the moment, in particular. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's tends to be reasonably longish days. Um, I train, as you know, per the programming we have um, six days a week. So my day, irrespective of what's going on, starts with training. Um, I'm usually up at five, start training by six, um, back home at eight, um, get my kids off to school and then off to work uh, once I've eaten and that sort of thing and usually get home around six. So then this gets to be the humble brag sort of thing. So you wake up every morning at the crack of dawn, you get to go train, right? And I think think a lot of us uh, who have been training for a long time just loathe training in the morning. It's the worst. Uh, But nevertheless, (laughs) you've still been able to put up some pretty good numbers. So this is your humble brag time. You get to tell us your best numbers. yeah, and what's next on the uh, the agenda for as far as PRs go? Well, uh, right now I'm kind of I'm, I'm I must say I'm a bit of a funk because as um, as Jordan knows, and I'm happy to expand on. I was actually unwell a couple of weeks ago. I got shingles um, down my arm, which uh, was extraordinarily painful and has basically basically kicked my ass very very hard. Prior to that, though, um, so yeah, I um, I currently weigh seventy uh, seven ish or thereabouts. Um, my best one rep squat was 180 kilos, which I think is about four or five pounds. Um, best one rep deadlift was uh, 225, and best uh, pause bench, oh, so um, just standard competition bench, was I think 125. Um, I'm not anywhere near that ballpark right now, but I'm just happy to be back to training and getting through a training week without feeling like my arm's going to drop off. Yeah. Um, it'll be a work in progress, but I'm hoping to get back there. I feel like getting shingles at your age is unusual, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I can assure you that the, I, I'm not carrying any infectious disease that can be communicated across the internet. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'd be happy to, to undertake a randomized controlled trial in that regard. That could kind of be fun. No, look, I, um, I spoke to my ID colleague who was very kind and helping me kind of um, get onto antivirals and things. Um, he's had it four times. Um, and each time it's been at the, um, at the apex of stress. And he's not, he's not a whole lot older than me. Hmm. Um, and he's not immunocompromised, and neither am I. So I think just being worn, being run down, you know, keeping a high training output, having a lot of work-related stuff at this time of the year, and that sort of thing, and probably not sleeping enough, taking a lot of call. So combination of those things. That's interesting, you know, especially as it pertains to training, because we do, you know, the big cohort of the folks that we work with, the big group is, is going to be, you know, have some poor recovery based on their sleep and their they have kids, yeah. and uh, you know, unless that stroller is for your pet, I believe that you you got some kids <laughs> back home. Um, but you know, they don't get shingles usually here. At least not that we, we not that we're aware of. But we wonder why we have a few weeks of poor training, and I would imagine just you know something else is going on. And that kind of comports with our stress model. You know, if you get if your stress yeah. is out, outstrips your recovery resources, what are you going to do? You get absolutely yeah. You get shingles. Everyone else has. Some, uh, you know, their gains are delayed, quote unquote. And then, um, yeah, yeah. All right. 
And then, all right, so what is the most common thing that you see as a rheumatologist besides the pre-op stuff, which I assume is a lot of people who need either stress dose steroids or considerations for that, um, you know, something like that? Yeah, so actually the, uh, the pre-op stuff is very varied. So it's, uh, it, it, it's not, not rheumatology patients necessarily having surgery. It's all kinds, you know. So oh, okay. um, the usual kind of group of patients with ischemic heart disease and diabetes and all that sort of stuff and just preoperative management of those oh, various things. Internal medicine but, stuff, I see. Yeah, internal oh, okay. medicine stuff, exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, absolutely. In, in uh, the rheumatology context, of course, it's management of immunosuppression and of uh, the adrenal stuff, uh, as you've correctly elucidated. Um, it, but to answer your question specifically, look, uh, when people get into rheumatology residency, and I've interviewed for this on both sides quite a bit, it's usually the, the, the standard thing is, why do you want to do it? Because I love inflammatory stuff. You know, I want to see all the immune stuff. Um, the stuff that has all the cool drugs, you know, mm -hmm. rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, that kind of stuff. Um, but in fact, the, the bulk of rheumatology is musculoskeletal medicine. So probably 60%, 60 to 70% of what I see is osteoarthritis uh, or degenerative stuff, which I'm sure we'll expand on shortly. Mm -hmm. um, and the rest of it would be the inflammatory kind of stuff or the immune stuff. Okay. Well, you know, that, that's actually a nice segue and right into this uh, osteoarthritis thing. You know, Austin and I talk about it. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. We gotta, <laughs> I'm going to have to send you a check. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we did a, for our first podcast about osteoarthritis and kind of review the literature yes. and how we manage it now. You, yeah. are, you have this different perspective because you've seen your patient population is almost by definition more ill or at least having more symptoms because they're getting referred to rheumatology, you know, like by the time that they, they see you. So, you know, the first yes. person that we, if we see somebody who comes and wants training, we're like, well, they may have OA just like everybody else, <laughs> you yeah, know, that's right. but they're that's still, right. there's, you know, they haven't necessarily been to the rheumatologist yet. So what's your first, you know, if you want to just a quick, quick and dirty, what is OA? What are, what is osteoarthritis? Uh, who's the t typical patient that you see? And then what do you do? What do you do with them? Um, specifically as it refers to, you know, uh, musculoskeletal, med musculoskeletal medicine as far as training or whatever. Sure. Yeah. So uh, it's hard to cover everything, obviously, but uh, in the interest of time, I'll keep it as brief as I can. Very broadly speaking, as you know, um, you can divide arthritis, which is just joint inflammation, into a degenerative kind, wear and tear, for uh, want of a better term, and I guess the immune kind or predominantly more inflammatory related stuff. Um, it's more nuanced than this, obviously, and I'm not trying to insult any of my colleagues, but I think that's, that's a fair way to kind of make broad brushstrokes and make it relatable to people. In osteoarthritis, in, in essence, um, particularly of weight-bearing joints, you have loss of cartilage. Uh, which is the stuff that normally keeps uh, joints nice and well lubricated and able to move freely. Um, loss of cartilage leads to pain, particularly when people use the joint or uh, put load through the joint, um, much more so than pain at rest, although both can coexist. Um, unlike the immune-related stuff where the immune system misbehaves and decides in, its own, in a fit of peak, if you like, to start attacking various bits of the joint and uh, quite frequently other tissues outside the joint, um, it doesn't tend to respond to immune-suppressing kind of medications like prednisolone or methotrexate or any of those other kind of drugs. So from a um, pharmacological point of view, the kind of stuff we use for osteoarthritis would be things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, paracetamol or acetaminophen, as you call it, um, and other non-pharmacological things like glucosamine and fish oil and curcumin, many of which your um, listeners may be familiar with. Sure. Now, so um, do you see do you see a lot of OA or osteoarthritis coming to you being treated previously with a trial of steroids out of like a last ditch effort kind of thing or somebody? Yeah, no, actually, I don't. I oh, don't. Okay. Surprisingly, um, that is, is that good. common in the US? Yeah. Or? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. yeah, it's it's quite common. Um, you know, for for better or worse, and I think you know a quick a quick look into the <laughs> literatures will would dissuade people from doing that. You just you know, yeah. How do people yeah. do with, they don't do much better, but at the same yeah. time, you know, the, the, the patient's there in the office and they're having a bunch of pain and, um, maybe you can't give them an injection. And so if hey, I just take this medication, maybe you'll feel better. But <laughs> and yes. even regardless, even regardless of any joint specific effects of prednisone for at least a few days, it'll probably make them feel pretty good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Prednisone, as you know, is very much a feel good kind of hormone. So absolutely. Yes. I would agree with you for, uh, for depression management. Oh, arthritis psychosis. It's not bad. Yeah. It's a spectrum. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, Osteoarthritis induced psychosis. I like that. I like that. You need to take steroids. Okay. So, so you don't see much medical, uh, uh, you know, 
poor pharmaceutical management. Um, all right, so they come to you and you've diagnosed them of having uh, osteoarthritis more, uh, yeah. which, so what's your sort of initial management? Uh, how do you treat, you know, uh, treat them once they make it, made it, made their way to your office? What's that? Yeah, sure. So look, um, I think uh, any discussion about osteoarthritis um, should be prefaced, I think, and I'm pretty sure you guys went through this in your podcast as well, is that if you look at clinical trials of intervention in osteoarthritis and probably pain more generally, there's a very high placebo response, which means that, you know, if you, if I tell you that um, sucking on lollies is going to help your pain and you have buy-in to that and I'm, I'm a persuasive salesperson, which I am, then there's a 50% <laughs> chance that you're going to believe me and your pain is going to get better. Uh, okay. I was told that this... lollies do increase, improve pain, so... <laughs> excellent, excellent. Ah, you're a believer. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Live long and prosper, my friend. Right, right. Um, and the corollary to that as well is that uh, the natural history of pain that is non-malignant is to improve over a six to eight week period or thereabouts, um, assuming that you're not going out of your way to cause more damage and do things that are harmful uh, to whatever stimulated the pain in the first place. So my general approach is to first kind of try and reassure people that it's pain and pain exists for everybody. I'm living with pain now after, after this bat of shingles and all the rest of it, but that doesn't stop me necessarily doing the things I want to do. Um, it's something that I can kind of control and uh, I can choose not to let the pain be a big factor in my life. It's not fun having it, but you know it can be managed. That's the first thing. Second thing is to say, um, to emphasize to patients for me, that particularly for low limb weight-bearing osteoarthritis, the one thing that correlates without fail with improvement in symptoms and long-term and, and reduction in long-term ill health or morbidity is the circumference of your quadriceps, i.e. the amount of lean mass that you're carrying around your quadriceps and thighs. That leads to a very nice segue to, to, to recommending training because every patient that I see with osteoarthritis, I'm going to recommend that they start doing some kind of training. You asked earlier, what, what's the phenotype or what's the typical patient that I see with osteoarthritis? Oftentimes, they're quite deconditioned. Oftentimes, they're quite overweight um, and they tend to be on the older side. So I, I'd say over the age of 60, which I don't think is old at all, but for reference. Um, that, that means, therefore, that getting them to undertake something reasonably specialized, like a barbell training program, is not an easy sell because the initial um, reaction almost inevitably is, I'm going to hurt myself. So I start by doing simple things, um, just to improve, I guess, appearance and see how committed they are um, by getting them to do faster walks uh, three times a week, you know, first thing in the morning, to show them that they can exert some control um, and maybe even achieve some basic body composition changes. If they buy into that, then the next step I get them to do is stationary bike kind of stuff. Um, you know, just to escalate resistance, try to run some kind of LP based on mm -hmm. that. And concurrent with that, eventually, particularly for the right kind of patient that dem demonstrates some aptitude and or appearance, I'm going to refer them for barbell training. Right. Now, in a perfect world, I'd coach them, um, even though my coaching would be a real hack job. But I don't have the time. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't think I have the aptitude like you guys do. Um, so I'm, I have to resort to referring them. Um, to a local coach who is not a starting strength coach, but a reasonable coach nonetheless, and is familiar with the starting strength model. Um, there are barriers to overcome there as well. Um, he's located at one place, the patients are often far flung and they find it hard to get there and things. But um, in essence, referring for barbell training, incorporating the squat, bench press, deadlift and overhead press is a key recommendation that I make to patients with osteoarthritis. Well, I think we can just wrap this up. Uh, that's all we needed. That's the soundbite <laughs> we did. Fantastic. Yes. Done. <laughs> Nailed it. No, I, you know, I think it's interesting, um, and, and I don't want to misquote you or mischaracterize your recommendation. Um, it sounds like you were trying to get some level of buy-in initially with them just to kind yes. of te weed out like, hey, I don't want to recommend this person, you know, to go see my barbell guy and, you know, and eat up their time if they're not even going to walk. Right. You know, they're Correct. not going to yeah, Yes. Yeah, I see. So, it, and it sounds like, again, and I think you might have mentioned this perfectly, you said in a perfect world, I would have them, you know, it'd be in the office, you'd have a starting strength coach, you'd have, you know, all these resources that just aren't. Sorry, and I missed that. <laughs> oh, sorry. So it sounds like in a, in a perfect world, you know, you would have this gym in the office and you would be able to coach them or you would have somebody there so they wouldn't be, there'd be less barriers to. Uh... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was having this discussion with my dad just the other day um, saying that my ideal setup would be exactly that. But I'd have my rooms and I'd have a really nice, well-equipped, replete with a Lyco <laughs> gear everywhere. It should be 100% tax deductible right next to, right next to the, in my rooms. And, you know, life is good, right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds, yeah, it sounds perfect. 
now, yeah. now, Austin, you have another an interesting thing as well because you get to see. I don't think you've had any patients come to your gym yet, but you've had a lot of your colleagues, right, uh, come. Yeah. So, and what's been their general response? You know, they ask you. So obviously, we're self selecting for people who are motivated to to train. Um, yeah. What's been their response after exposure to the to the lifts? You mean the you mean the patients' response? No. So you haven't trained any or patients. You've trained so like I colleagues. Yeah. So I. I haven't, no, 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 I have, I have, so I have not self-referred any patients to myself, but I've had colleagues who have referred their patients to me. Oh, Some of them I've, some of, some of them I've trained. And additionally, I've had some folks come who I've coached and they have various medical problems that I have to work around. I mentioned to you, you know, recently I've worked with folks, I've plenty of folks with like metabolic syndrome. It's rampant in San Antonio here. Yeah. I recently worked with a gentleman who had a history of TBI. So like all kinds of different issues that I've had to work around from like a patient perspective. And yeah, I agree that we self, you know, it's to a degree selecting. I'm not able to get all the patients who would benefit from this to come and to come and train. But um, I think that the initial response is, uh, is, is that, is that a fax machine or something? What's going on? No, man, it's uh, my housekeeper's. Okay. <laughs> Sham is on a different uh, uh, financial level than we are. He has a housekeeper. Apparently. It's so... um, it's gonna well, when you live in a shoebox, man, it's very easy to maintain. <laughs> right, 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 right. True. Fair enough. The, uh, the initial response that I typically get is just that they're always surprised that it was not necessarily what they expected. You know, that they ended up feeling fine during the session, that it wasn't yep. as scary or as hard or as painful or as terrifying as they thought barbells were. Um, and they leave and they're you know, as motivated as ever to do it. I've never had somebody who left and they're like, you know, I don't think this is actually for me. So that that's good. Uh, fun fact. Look, I am. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, so Dr. House, Hugh Laurie, yes. shows, up, shows up to Horn Strength and Conditioning to do a session with Horn. Oh, wow. And, and, you oh, know, that's Horn, awesome. Yeah, Horn's like, do you know this guy? I'm like, I mean, I don't know him like personally or biblically, but I'm like a super fan, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to be like, it's lupus, it's lupus. It's so, never lupus. It's never, yeah, yeah, yeah. It turns out that we have the rheumatologist who says it's never lupus. Correct. Um, <laughs> but, but apparently he had read the Starting Strength, you know, book, and he was like really into it, and he just wanted a one-off coaching session, you know, and then after having experienced it firsthand, he goes... Uh, it's pretty hard. <laughs> Which, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that would have been really cool if House got jacked, you know. House MD Absolutely. back, jacked, no cane, season seven. Yeah. That, <laughs> hey, that's a fantastic uh, plot, uh, plot twist to the end. Hey, he gets up and walks Lazarus like no cane and then does a perfect squat. Squat. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, we were on the osteoarthritis thing, and I think, you know, the uh, big question, So because we, we have a lot of people who are coaches – and some medical folks who are listening, what would be your absolute contraindication for a patient who had osteoarthritis and no other um, sort of chronic um, conditions that they're, they're really would affect their training status? What would be like an osteoarthritis kind of contraindication to loaded training, resistance training? Yep. Look, it's kind of hard. Um, I think it's important to draw a distinction between axial or spinal osteoarthritis um, versus the lower limb weight-bearing joint kind of osteoarthritis, um, as well as the peripheral kind of joints. All those three are different, um, I think, in their base etiologies and how they, how they behave and respond to training. I think it's fair to say that if someone has really bad bone-on-bone hip or knee osteoarthritis, then prima facie, it's going to be very hard for them to squat um, or even to leg press uh, effectively through a range of motion. Not to say they can't do it, but the level of discomfort that they experience, even using a hip-dominant model, like the starting strength model tends to, tends to teach, um, would still be, I think, a little bit of a difficult sell. Um, I think if you had uh, significant cervical spine osteoarthritis, sufficient to cause radiculopathy, which would, be, which would make it hard for you to, to hold the bar, particularly across your, bar, uh, across your back and, and keep it there, um, but I think that would be a relative contraindication to training. However, both of these things said, my general belief is that everyone who has any capacity to train should train. Because if you've got a good coach sitting there supervising you and adequate spotting and uh, lifting in a, in a safe environment, like in a power rack, then I think there is, there is always going to be um, both tangible and intangible system-wide benefits from increasing lean muscle mass and doing so in something that's efficient time-wise um, you know, and, and doesn't waste uh, waste your time or anybody else's. So that at the, that point, the benefits outweigh the risks. 
Um, you know, in my opinion, yes, sure. Okay. I was also I was also thinking that it, this also presumes when you mentioned that they have severe quote bone on bone in their knees or in their yep. hips yep. that they have yes. that they have symptomatology that is kind of correlates with that. With that. Absolutely, with yes, because Definitely. plenty of people have bone on bone but don't have symptoms to reflect that sort of thing. At least radiogra- yeah. radiographically speaking. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think that's that's an important point that I make to patients as well, um, that the the pain is a multifaceted thing. I think you covered that very elegantly in the article that you wrote for, for um, Mark Ripito's website. Yeah. Um, there are many inputs, uh, nociceptive and otherwise, into uh, someone's interpretation of pain. And I think absolutely there is there tends to be a disconnect in that you can have people with not terrible Kelvin lawrence grade osteoarthritis of the knee and terrible pain, and people with really bad uh grade four plus Kelvin Lawrence osteoarthritis um, and you know kind of getting by and managing yeah. my parents are a case in point my mother in particular um, with apologies for dragging my parents into this discussion <laughs> um, I'm sure they won't mind um, look I uh, one of the things I say and it gives me a lot of credibility with my patients is that I make my parents train um, they I pay for them to go and see this barbell guy and they train my mother has very bad osteoarthritis for her knees radiographically um, radiologically even on MRI Periodically, she needs an injection into, into her knees or I need to drain some fluid and that sort of thing, which is, I guess, one of the perks of having a son who's a rheumatologist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but she trains. And, you know, even though it's hard for her to squat and deadlift and that sort of thing, she always says to me she feels better when she trains. And she mm-hmm. trains twice a week. And, you know, both my parents are not athletic people. They're academics, they're amazingly academic people. Um, but, you know, they both say that their quality of life has improved immeasurably. So now it's become a self-fulfilling thing. And mm-hmm. it's a great line because I go to my patients, well, if it's good enough for my parents, it's good enough for my patients. And that's yeah. great, you know, because that, that, that provokes quite a lot of buy-in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I think all these things are relative. And I think there are many things that you can do to train around uh, whatever symptoms you have. And no matter what, in any patient who gets, let's say, they've got bad, they've got, you know, really terrible osteoarthritis of their low-limb weight-bearing joint. If you're going to go off and have an arthroplasty, the person that does best is the person that comes in with greater quadriceps and hamstring strength, the person who's going to fall less, the person who's going to rehab better um, and make full use of that prosthesis. So yeah. the way I figure, it's all good. It's not It's not surprising that Ed Cohn has had both hips replaced and is still squatting mid-sixes. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, it's just came into it with great strength and he tends to have a better outcome as a result. Yeah, it's not yeah, surprising. You do better. Yeah, yeah. The it's just in the sky. You know, that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, sorry, sorry, sorry. also not surprising that Shams' parents are academics. Oh, be right back. Going into university at sixteen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's fair to say that I'm the black sheep of the family, man. My folks are like next level. So yeah. So, oh, wow. uh, well, remind me not to ever purposely meet your parents because I just my ego can't handle that. I'm too fragile. I'm too fragile. Oh, actually, my mother has a bone to pick with you because oh, she God. goes, "Why? You, why? Who is this person that makes you train like this and keeps pushing?" <laughs> And I said, uh, well, he's not pushing me to do anything. I want to lift everywhere. Right, 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 right. She doesn't exactly steer me to her either. So there you go. You're kind of off the hook, man. I'm all, all right. Good, good, good. good. <laughs> um, okay. So, and I think this bears, you know, uh, mentioning. So osteoarthritis, would you, you, would you classify this as inflammatory or a sort of a dis- a destructive etiology as far as what causes osteoarthritis? Is- this is a really, it's a, it's a terrific question. Look, I think the bottom line is, um, as with most things, the state of the science is evolving. I think increasingly we're going to find that there is, in fact, an immune uh, or inflammatory component that starts off the process in the first place. Um, and that would help explain, for example, why some people, even without doing a whole lot of repetitive sort of stuff involving loading of their joints, still get osteoarthritis, um, particularly at a young age. Um, but mostly, I think for the sake of convenience, it's okay to say that uh, it's a use-related thing and it's degenerative um, with inflammation that happens as a result of that. I think the picture is much more nuanced than that, and that will hopefully um, be revealed in my lifetime, such that I have more effective treatments to offer patients than what I currently do. Let it also be said that... Yeah, one of the concepts that I found super interesting when I was doing a bunch of work for the osteoarthritis thing was the phrase of uh, metabolic osteoarthritis when they refer mm, to people's yes. metabolic syndrome and they kind of yep. associate, that's a strong association, uh, yep. associating it with osteo- severe osteoarthritis of the hands, even in the absence. Yes. I mean, the fingers are not obviously like weight-bearing joints. You can do a yep. lot of work with them, but right. I've seen some horrific erosive osteoarthritis in people's yes. hands. Yes. And I'm like, what are you doing with your hands? But it's not anything like remarkable. It's just you know, their situation. And so that's kind of something we got into when we were differentiating 
molecular and cellular inflammation and things like that and how that kind of has the impact because there has to be some mechanistic explanation for why things like NSAIDs and prednisone make some people feel better in some situations you know what I mean so there's something going on there that has some infl inflammation it's just not the inflammation that we've historically recognized as you know draining a bunch of high white blood cells out of your knee or you know all that kind of stuff so Absolutely. No, I think that that is very elegantly put. And indeed, there is a phenotype of osteoarthritis that is inflammatory or erosive osteoarthritis of the hands. And um, without, again, boring your listeners, for, for all intents and purposes, even though the evidence base isn't great, we tend to manage that the way we would immune-related inflammatory yeah. arthritis, using um, brimislone and injections and mm -hmm. um, uh, chemotherapy-type drugs like methotrexate or, or that sort of thing, and sometimes anti-cytokine-based therapy. To your point about metabolic syndrome, as you know, um, fat and muscle are both metabolically active tissues. Broadly speaking, I think it's fair to say, even though I'm sure, I, I know it's more nuanced than this, that fat can be, the, more, the greater fat mass you carry, the more inflammatory kind of mm -hmm. um, yeah, compounds or kinds, chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, yes, are produced. And I think those have system-wide effects that are often very deleterious and contribute not just to the metabolic syndrome, but to various other consequences like osteoarthritis and right. indeed inflammatory arthritis. Um, equally, I think the more lean mass you carry, the more anti-inflammatory, if you like, um, you know, kind of cytokines and chemicals are produced. And I think that overall, that's one of the reasons why people who have carry more lean mass generally tend to have less morbidity for a whole, mm -hmm. a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah, I'd like to also point out that I'm not the only one who says the word nuanced. Just like to, <laughs> like to say, I knew that was coming. <laughs> and then. Uh, we, you know, and also I think what I'm hearing you say is that everyone needs to be on a gluten-free, high fish oil diet in order to control for inflammatory, you know. Okay, so look, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say something slightly inflammatory. I think that um, there are many people that buy into the whole idea of having celiac disease or being gluten-sensitive and that sort of thing, when in fact there's no um, objective evidence that they have gluten sensitivity or indeed outright celiac disease. Um, again, I, I think there is a significant com uh, placebo component for many of these people. I think if you truly have celiac disease or true gluten sensitivity, then it makes perfect sense for you to be on a, a gluten-free or low-gluten diet. Um, but I don't have a problem if people do that and it makes them feel better. Again, the placebo response is 50%. So if that makes you feel better and allows you to train and gives you good quality of life, then you know, go for it. As far as fish oil goes, um, yeah, I kind of a lot of the research on fish oil was done at the University of South Australia. So I'm kind of a believer, even though the um, the overall evidence is kind of is not terribly favourable uh, that, that it does very much. Um, I think if you don't have like an iodine problem, because fish oil has a lot of iodine, and you don't have a fish allergy, and you want to try it, I, I'm happy. I, I don't mind if people do that at three grams a day. Okay. Now, as from the research I did uh, for this uh, the osteoarthritis uh, original episode, um, and just Prior to that, the evidence is better for RA, rheumatoid, the rheumatic kind of. Yeah, yeah. that's right. For inflammatory conditions, yes, yeah. correct. Versus, correct. but right. but for osteoarthritis, not as good unless you're. Not the, plus, yeah, the placebo effect is. And it's interesting, you know. You would say that we're trying to leverage if we're if we're holistic practitioners, we're trying to leverage the placebo effect as much as possible, and you know. Yeah, yeah I kind of I kind of side with you in the, in that if it's going to work or help. Um, we can find out and the risks are pretty low uh, unless you're being prescribed like Lavaza in the United States. It's $3,500 a year for fish oil, which seems a little high, um, you know, a year. So, um, so there's some wow. cost associated with it that, you know, is different than just taking your over the counter. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, um, I, I completely agree with you. We're all about, I'm all about leveraging the, leveraging the placebo effect where it's safe and uh, not a significant financial impost for a patient to do so. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, $3,500. Hey, I've got bridges I want to sell them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay. So uh, as we uh, kind of make our way down here, so do you see a lot of patients who come in with, you know, uh, arthritic pain? I'm sorry, I missed that. Sorry, do you see a lot of patients who come in with uh, joint pain due to gout? Do you see a lot of gouty patients that are referred your way? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. What do you yes. what do you do with them? Because we have this kind of interesting sort of situation where you you know you probably want to get them to train, but then there's a the concern of a protein intake and then the actual erosive lesions at the joints. You know, what's your kind of take on, on what do, what do you do with a gout patient as far as training? Yeah. So um, if it's okay for the benefit of your listeners, I might just very quickly um, talk about what gout is. Sure. Um, so I have. In the interest of disclosure here, I got approached by Men's Health Magazine uh, to do a little thing on gout uh, not that long mm. ago. Men's Health Magazine of the U.S., as it turns out. Excuse me. I was completely shirted for that interview. Can I <laughs> <laughs> um, 
because I, I published in gout. So gout um, is a very old uh, inflammatory disease. It's been around for a very long time, Roman, Roman age and, and uh, probably even beyond that. Um, it's caused by crystals of a kind called uric acid. Mm-hmm. And uric acid is ubiquitous. It's found, uh, we, we have it naturally, um, and it comes from uh, a component of protein-rich foods in particular called a purine. Uh, the way the body metabolizes a purine um, results in the creation of uric acid, if you like, and it, it manifests as joint pain that has been likened since the 1600s to being so painful that it's like walking on your own eyeballs with knives in them. Oh, yikes. Um, the typical <laughs> joint that's, uh, that's affected in, um, in gout tends to be your lower limb joints, um, far from the, the center of the body. And I think it has to do with core temperature as much as anything else, because mm-hmm. low, low body temperatures or low temperatures in general um, result in uric acid precipitating. And when it precipitates, it causes an intense inflammatory response, which leads to joint pain, swelling, redness, and basically disability. Um, it tends to be the big toe, often, uh, that, uh, that's affected, particularly on the left-hand side, for reasons I can't, uh, I can't expound on. Um, mm. But basically, most joints in the body can be affected by it, including the spine, uh, interestingly enough. The one thing about gout is we know the mechanism behind it really, really well, and it is deeply satisfying to treat. Um, there are many um, pharmacological, some pharmacological ways and non-pharmacological ways to approach it. Um, to answer your question, a... High-protein diet, prima facie, should be an increased risk uh, for production of purines and for causing hyperuricemia. Um, let me give you some disclosure here. So my dad has gout, and he's on appropriate treatment uh, to lower his uric acid. He supplements with whey, because I make him supplement with whey protein. Um, and he drinks you know, an adequate fluid intake. He's not had an attack of gout since he's been training at all, including in summer months and all the rest of it. And he, I would not classify him as someone who is particularly adherent to the fluid prescription that I've given. <laughs> sure. He's extremely non-adherent, I think it's fair to say. And to be clear, I think that you would probably say that all of your, or not all, but many of your colleagues would find such a prescription to supplement with whey protein to be heretical in a patient with gout. Oh. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I take the I take the decision away from them. I, I buy it from when I when I stuck up a month, <laughs> I buy them extra stuff. So this is what you're going to take. Yeah, it's great. Okay. I mean, and and, um, and just for the listeners' sake, I mean, I work with a handful of patients or people with gout uh, for nutrition wise. Um, they get referred to me, and I've seen it obviously in the in the clinic uh, during residency. And my reading on it is such that I mean, when you look at the studies. They have specific inflection points of gouty attacks at particular protein levels. And so you start getting scared to say, hey, eat more than 125 grams of protein a day, for instance. Um, And so that kind of caused me to make the recommendation, well, if we keep it at 125 and then supplement with BCAAs, free-form BCAAs with meals, you know, you can get some, you can get some, a good effect out of that. But effectively what you're telling me is that your dad, even though going above probably that level of protein intake is doing just fine, which, I mean, you know, of course there's a, there's multiple mechanisms going into why purines will precipitate. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. okay. But you know, that's just, it's just interesting that the, the data. It's an interesting here. anecdote. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, as with all these things, it's an, it's nuanced to use a word that you, well, both of you enjoy so much. Um, yes. My dad, you know, is for all intents and purposes, he's very compliant with taking his gout medication. So that's one good thing. His gout acid levels, uric acid levels are at a range in, in blood when he gets them tested such that his probability of getting a gout attack would be low to begin with. But mm-hmm. interestingly, it has not changed in the time that he's been training and supplementing with whey. And I think he takes... Um, an extra 60 or 70 grams of whey protein a day, um, uh, give or take, you know, so food, I can't remember how it is, but, you know, it's there. Um, the situation may be very different to someone with more brittle gout who is non-adherent to their pharmacological treatment, which sure. is using medicines like allopurinol or xylopurin, mm-hmm. um, who uh, is, has a very um, high intake of alcohol-related purines, so mm-hmm. particularly beers and that sort of thing. My dad doesn't uh, really tend to drink much alcohol. Um, and my dad does not have TOFI, which is the buildup of when you've had gout or high uric acid levels for so long that the uric acid no longer just sits in the joints, but it crystallizes and precipitates in the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things, I think, may well alter your sensitivity to developing a gout episode. I mean, it, it stands to reason, right? If you've got more severe phenotype, then odds are you, it will take less to piss off your gout. Um, um, yeah. yeah. If you're listening to this, uh, this is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> the recommendation yes. says. 
<laughs> medical treatment. Please talk doctors. to your doctor. Yeah, we are doctors, though we are not your doctors, your unless doctor. we are. Right. In which case, you should ask us. I'm not. Right. Yeah, Sham, Sham is not probably. Um, yeah. So, but I, I do think that there is a, an important role uh, for training. Um, Austin mentioned the metabolic syndrome before. Gout is very strongly associated with the metabolic syndrome. I think hyperuricemia is a marker of oxidative stress. Um, I think one great way to uh, reduce oxidative stress is, again, to train, to improve your aerobic capacity, to improve your anaerobic capacity, improve lean mass, um, change your cytokine profile, and do all those good things that come with it. Um, again, you asked, you uh, to reference back to your question earlier about you know contraindications to training. I think it would be really hard for someone with very bad tophaceous gout around the elbow, around the uh, finger joints, around the, the feet and things, to be able to train effectively because balance is affected, pain is affected, um, those things can get infected if they, if they break down. Um, but given enough time to establish remission of their gout using the appropriate medications, things like allopurinol, um, you can get dissolution of those tophi. Right. You can make them softer and you can reduce the chances of gout flares. All those things, I think, gradually make the case for introducing some training. And I think barbell training is the way to go. So just, yeah, you would, if you had somebody in acute flare, they probably wouldn't be able to train. And then uh, they're not going to be doing obvious <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's just the thing though. Well, I know, you know, imagine, imagine somebody, a starting strength coach who is, you know, familiar with the coaching method, but not necessarily familiar with these medical sort of conditions. And, sure. and so they may yeah. have a person and on their intake questionnaire, it says, Oh, history of gout flare. And the person's like, oh, crap, uh, you know. And so what you're saying is that, yeah, somebody may have a history of gout flare, but if they don't have an acute one right now, they can probably still train. And, and the idea is they're going to continue to follow up with their doctor anyway, but they'd probably be okay to train despite having history of uh, gout flare uh, at some point. But if they're acutely, yeah, I like that term, <laughs> tophaceous gout. Um, what I was saying is that there's no contraindication to training if just with a history of gout. No, not at all. So I, I think it's context sensitive, right? Just like anything else. If you're, uh, if you're asking about past history and someone says they had a, a single attack of gout six months ago, but they've been kind of okay since then, well, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's, not a, that's a no-brainer. They should train, but they should pay extra attention to their hydration, which you kind of advise them from a nutritional point of view anyway. And I would be cautious with up titrating the, the um, protein supplementation. Um, starting with, say, 125 grams or thereabouts and just adding in, but make it a kind of an LP, if you like, a linear progression of their, um, their protein. Yeah, just to yeah. see what they can tolerate. At like some that. point, there's, you're going to work it out, right? Yeah, L yeah. LPOP. So, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Trademarked. Trademarked. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll give you royalties. Um, you know, and, and then this is kind of the, the there's, there's two other uh, kind of room specific, rheumatology specific uh, disease processes I kind of wanted to address. One is this ankylosing spondylitis, you know, and, and classically we learned it's this young guy with back pain gets better, you know, with training. Do you see that a lot or? or yeah. Okay. So yeah, absolutely. Frequently. Um, in fact, in, in Australia at the moment, the, um, okay, so the, I'll take one step back. The, of the five uh, drugs in 2015 worldwide with sales above $5 billion, right? Four of them are rheumatology specific drugs. Um, they're anti TNF based kind of things. So I'm, we are very valuable as a group to the, the drug companies as a <laughs> marketing um, shit. Part of the reason that, well, that's right, that's right, yes. Because I'm, I'm an honorable man. Um, but the, um, the reason that they're the best selling drugs is A, they're very expensive, but B, they also work. Um, and give us treatment options that we didn't previously have. For ankylosing spondylitis in particular, some of these drugs have absolutely revolutionized the symptomatology that patients experience. I don't know yet whether they fully alter the disease process you know, sufficient to give someone a normal life expectancy and no flares and that kind of stuff. It's not a cure by any means. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day symptoms, some of the results I've seen with these drugs for these kind of patients has been unbelievable. Uh, the reason I mention that is because uh, the drug companies are obviously one of the things that they're um, most interested in is gaining more market share and, of course, providing community service and things as they, as they go along doing that. Um, and the companies that make these drugs have made a very concerted effort in Australia in uh, recent months to raise awareness about ankylosing spondylitis. Um, do you guys, I mean, you guys know what cricket is, right? Cricket, the cell phone stuff? No, the sport. Oh, cricket, the sport. So... <laughs> I, not, not, not being pejorative at all. Um, the, um, it's very popular. And uh, there's a particularly renowned Australian cricketer um, who has ankylosing spondylitis, who has been a very effective spokesperson. 
for uh, some of the drug companies that make these particular drugs for them. Um, so I think the awareness of Axpon in general has gone up, and that's that's can only be a good thing because the earlier people get referred in general to specialists like myself or my colleagues, um, the better we might be able to manage it, and the earlier we might be able to intervene before these changes um, affecting the back become uh, insurmountable. So in a roundabout way, I guess that leads to, well, why do we want to intervene and what symptoms are there? So you're absolutely right. Um, ankylosing spondylitis is an inflammatory disease. The immune system, for reasons that we don't fully understand and lots of billions of dollars are researching, um, goes into this kind of overdrive mode to attack various bits around some of the spinal joints, particularly the ones at the very bottom of the spine called the sacroiliac joints, which is basically where your spine meets your pelvis. Um, that leads to symptoms of what that we characterize as inflammatory back pain, which is exactly as you said, back pain that is significantly associated with a long period of stiffness in the morning. So it's worse after rest, tends to get better with exercise. Um, you know, so the, the typical person would be a young guy who is very athletic and things and feels not bad when they play, but feels absolutely mashed when they finish playing. So be it basketball, tennis, cricket, what, what have you, you know. Um, interestingly enough, anti-inflammatories, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like diclofenac or naproxen and that sort of thing seem to make maybe disease modifying, but certainly make to a variable extent, quite a difference in terms of people's symptoms. They say, when I take these kind of anti-inflammatories, I feel pretty good. If I take them at night, you know, I wake up feeling not quite so stiff. In the long term, if it's left untreated over many, many years, we sometimes see people who, referencing a, a classic symptoms character, um, become sort of Mr. Burns, you know. They get the, the sort of flattening of the, of the curve of their back. Um, they get hunched over. They, they get a whole lot of movement. Um, and I always think of the Mr. Burns analogy because it's a great way to kind of remember that. Um, they, there's a lot of systemic symptomatology associated with this as well. Uh, people get very, very fatigued very easily, um, and this uh, really plays havoc with their quality of lives and can really um, result in very high health-related quality of life morbidity and costs the economy thereof. Um, the good news is that some of these very high-cost drugs make an enormous difference, not just to the appearance of the joints when you do x-rays and things, uh, but also in terms of the symptomatology. People report that they can actually move. They have significantly less early morning stiffness, much more energy, um, less peripheral joint pain, and just overall, they just feel a million bucks, a whole lot better than any of the conventional kind of drugs uh, most of the time. So I added, I added this ankylosing spondylitis to our list of things to talk about, mainly because I've coached two people uh, who, had, who had it. And uh, they came to me, fortunately, having already been essentially cleared by their rheumatologist to train. They said that it was okay. I, I don't think that they had been on biologics yet. They had been on lesser forms of immunosuppression. I think maybe one of them took like azathioprine or something like that. Yeah. Um, but he he was okay. he said that he was okay to train. He was being monitored and everything, and so we trained him, and he did he did great. And I just found it to be interesting because you know that's not something that you know I see cases of it here and there. Um, I saw more cases of it when I was actually in a rheumatology clinic, but outside of that, we don't see it a whole lot. And so it was neat to see that they were able to train essentially un, unhindered from my perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Austin, I think that and that's wonderful that you've had that experience as well. Um, Referencing Jordan's question before, you know, some people are going to say, well, are there people with Axpond who can't train or who shouldn't train? Look, I think if you have um, Axpond of sufficient duration and severity, such that you have what we call a bamboo spine, where you have um, bone bridges that are formed literally between the vertebrae, um, there's pretty persuasive evidence suggesting that uh, those kind of patients have more brittle bones and they're more prone to fractures, uh, particularly of a kind we call green stick sort of fractures. It's more relevant if you're doing... Um, I guess, uh, ballistic type movements, so uh, power clean, power snatch, that sort of stuff, or where you have a high, high balance component and um, high force production component. Um, I think those patients, I would have some hesitation in recommending they do those ballistic type movements, but I think a controlled movement, like the squat or the deadlift or bench press or even overhead press, um, I think provided that they were able to um, start with some kind of weight that they could handle and you could kind of test the waters, so to speak, and run them on a, a very carefully um, supervised linear progression, I think that would be a very good thing for them because they need more bone mass, they need more muscle mass, just like mm -hmm. the next guy. Um, and I don't think that would be a, a major contraindication for them. Well, there you, heard, you have it, folks. Uh, you can train. doesn't matter what medical conditions you have. You just keep training <laughs> and uh, it's, just, <laughs> it's just fine. No, that, that, that makes sense. And and it also makes sense that, you know, if you're able to incrementally load and, um, yeah, controlled movement, 
it seems like you know if you got to live with it anyway this just makes you symptomatically probably better functions of you know activities of daily life improve your functionality scores improve you're probably less depressed because you're training so I know you know we reference some of the um, medications just in general the biologics and anti-inflammatories yeah. and stuff like that any you know probably the first question I would ask because this is recently just came up on a small website called Facebook and <laughs> we're talking about the ibuprofen protocol okay so ibuprofen yeah. yeah. non yeah. anti-inflammatory drug uh, and we have uh, the starting strength community had it at, at some point said oh there's the ibuprofen protocol you just take you know, 800 milligrams a day or something like that for five days, which isn't the max dose, but there's evidence, as you know, that's out there suggesting the cardiovascular risk for taking uh, ibuprofen long-term. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sorry, Matt. It's, it's, uh, I just missed that. Oh, it's fine. So the ibuprofen, <laughs> there's evidence out there suggesting that if you take ibuprofen long-term, you can get, there's a cardiovascular risk. Um, and that, and obviously the GI yeah. risk of taking ibuprofen uh, long term. What do you make? Yeah. Of, what do you make of that? And then, if you had to, to give people a takeaway on their ibuprofen usage, if you had one, if you had a gun in your head, what would you say? But this is really hard. Um, there's the data on the cardiovascular risk stuff. Um, I think is real. There, there is a small but measurable increased risk of cardiovascular. Um, disease and mortality um, with, I think, any exposure, even short-term, to anti-inflammatories. But does that mean that nobody should take anti-inflammatories? I would put it to you that if I had a patient um, in whom taking a low dose of anti-inflammatories, say, um, to, to give you one example, someone with osteoarthritis who um, really wants to train or just really wants to walk uh, to maintain their body composition and maintain some degree of fitness, if they could take, say, a low dose of meloxicam or something like that, like a long-acting non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, and that allowed them to get out and do that kind of stuff, probably, in my opinion, uh, I don't have facts necessarily to back this up, but I feel that their overall risk would probably balance out uh, in terms of risk versus benefit. Um, equally, if you had a young, healthy person who um, tweaks something, like a, a back or a shoulder or that sort of thing, and they want to take anti-inflammatories for a short period, like a week or thereabouts, doing it properly, so you know, having it with meals, um, you know, and trying to not smoke and uh, drink copious quantities of alcohol, do other things to improve, to um, increase their cardiovascular risk, probably that would be okay for the short term. It doesn't necessarily, everyone who takes anti-inflammatories um, outside of high, chronic high-dose use, I don't think is going to end up like um, Alonzo Mourning, for example, you know, having uh, two kidney transplants and allergenic nephropathy, um, at least one kidney transplant. I don't recall the exact details now. Um, so my general feel is short-term use is okay. Um, like with most of these things, I think it's fair to say in general with medicine, you want to take the minimum quantity of drug for the minimum length of time to, to avoid side effects. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you can wrap yourself up in a bubble because otherwise these drugs wouldn't exist because they do, they do work in inverted commas. They relieve symptoms, you know. And I think if it permits you to get getting some quality of life back and equally allows you to be, to have, be somewhat introspective about looking to what caused the injury in the first place and trying to mitigate that, then that's probably okay. So you would be okay with taking uh, those medications for a short period of time if needed and if they if, uh, we're taking other steps to reduce risk overall of any side effect. I, I think that makes sense. And um, yeah, okay. yeah. and right. especially if it's being used as a way to facilitate the thing that will provide more quote unquote definitive management, right. like an osteoarthritis patient takes it. So they train over the long term, their training makes their knees better. Sure. There you go. Sure. Absolutely, correct. Absolutely correct. Absolutely uh, correct. Are there any, are there any medications that you routinely prescribe or see that would, uh, you know, have a deleterious effect on training that you know of? I don't know if you've actually done some research on any of the medications you see that actually, you know, affect folks' training progress. Uh, I'll give you one anecdote. I've actually, what's that? I've actually, well, prednisone. Well, prednisone, yeah, yeah. But, well, yeah. well, as far as that affecting, so you've seen research that shows that prednisone, I mean, it's obviously can be myotoxic, but as far as the yeah. uh, strength, I haven't seen any strength outcomes being tested on prednisone. Um, I Likewise. Likewise, yeah. neither have I. And like serolimus or whatever. I was just looking to see if there's like a muscle protein synthesis kind of like, and nobody's evaluating because no one cares. We're the only ones who are like, yeah. oh, I wonder what happened <laughs> to my bicep cross-sectional area if I start taking it. <laughs> so, so, Is this a cue for you to go shirtless now? To yeah, look at yeah. And so the yeah, uh, <laughs> Instagram live. Um, <laughs> Well, look, um, it, again, great question. I think the problem is that this is sufficient 
sufficiently niche in mainstream medicine that there's not a whole lot of people doing this particular kind of research. Um, but I think we can maybe draw some intuitive conclusions that may or may not be wrong. Um, a reminder of the old anecdote that you might have been told in your first day of med school, which is that 50% of what you know the person's going to tell, or you're, what, whatever you're going to be taught in med school is wrong, but we just don't know which 50% that is, you know, the state of the science evolves. So with that caveat, um, steroids are the obvious, so um, not anabolic steroids, but I guess what you might call catabolic steroids, uh, prednisolone and prednisone and derivatives like that, um, in high doses, um, which I would say, you know, one milligram per kilogram or more, um, can be associated with weakening of tendons, so tendon rupture. It can be myopathic, absolutely, as you both have seen, patients who are on chronic long-term steroids um, tend to lose muscle mass um, around their hip and shoulder girdles, which leads to them having difficulty squatting, getting out of the chair, that, that kind of stuff. Um, having said that, is that a contraindication? I think that if you could train, um, although if you did it unsupervised um, and didn't have a good handle on how to measure your fatigue and training stress, um, your risk of injury is higher. But equally, if you did it in a supervised way and or you were training with some miles under your belt sufficient to kind of gauge what your training stress is, I think that would probably be a good thing because I think that might well actually mitigate uh, the myopathic effects and the tendon-related effects. Um, the cytokine treatments are an interesting one. I know uh, from research in uh, inflammatory myopathies, things like polymyositis and dermatomyositis, that, um, and in, in uh, what little exercise physiology research I've read, that the inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-6 and, and TNF-alpha, uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, um, are quite helpful to actually uh, drive the, the regenerative process in muscle. So you, to, mm -hmm. I guess the, the adaptation part of the SAR um, uh, model that we use. Prima facie, if you, many, of, many of our anti-cytokine therapies, our, um, sophisticated biological therapies, block these cytokines because they also cause inflammation. Um, therefore, it may be the case that patients on these kind of therapies may have a more blunted adaptation response to training. Again, though, I think it's a much more complex picture than that because if you've got someone who has uncontrolled inflammatory disease and you bring that disease under control using these medications such that their recovery is likely to be better, probably it all evens out in the end. Their progress might be a little bit slower than the um, unhindered or unencumbered trainee, if you like, of the same age, um, same training kind of status and that sort of thing. Uh, but overall, I think it's still a good thing for them to train and they probably derive some benefits out of it. Um, in Chinese, I guess, training in a commercial gym environment, training hard um, and not providing enough attention to recovery, I suppose there's a risk of picking up infections and things. I'm a case in point. I mean, I'm not immunocompromised. I got shingles and uh, that's a reactivation. So it's a different thing. But they may be more susceptible um, to infections and things just because of the kind of training load they're under. But again, that can be manipulated. You can dose the stress appropriately such that they and, and track uh, various metrics to make sure they're getting the right outcome out of that. Um, neuropathic pain agents and antidepressants um, have various interesting effects on the central nervous system, which might mean that uh, patients can't execute particularly ballistic lifts as cleanly as they otherwise would. But again, I don't think that applies to the big lifts as we define them, or as I, I think you guys define them, uh, the squat, bench press, deadlift, overhead press. So um, there's... Look, I mean, there's the obvious ones. If you're on like cyclophosphamide as infusional kind of protocol and things, you're going to feel pretty crappy. Like, and that's that's a huge understatement. Um, but again, I have read anecdotally of people who try and train in some way, shape, or form, even if it's doing bodyweight stuff or push-ups or planks mm -hmm. or what have you. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, in fact, if anything, that's probably an underexplored area um, to help reduce the the terrible effects or side effects that these drugs have. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they have data on similar types of things, whether it be physical therapy or whatever kind of exercise modality in oncology patients who are on chemotherapy, yep. and you are effectively, you know, it's just, you're just using rheumatology chemotherapy on patients as opposed exactly. to anti, anti-tumor chemotherapy. So, Correct. yeah. Yeah, I think what uh, what I'm hearing you say, Sham, is that you're gonna about to start a randomized uh, controlled trial of patients who are on steroids who are training, <laughs> and then patients who are on steroids who are not training, and then you can just gauge their outcomes, and then you can write. Absolutely. It. Yeah, I think that's what I'm hearing. Absolutely. You say. I think the, <laughs> the outcomes there is going to be the thigh to buy ratio or the general jackitude. Um, I think that would be a good thing. Uh, Am I allowed to say that? I think yes. thigh to buy ratio. I like that. I like the TBR. That. Yeah, we're still trying <laughs> yeah. to suss out what the gains score is. We need to come up with our criteria and then, uh, you know, our, our scale. Yeah, gains coefficient, man. That's what we need. It's like the Gini coefficient, but applied to, you 
we literally we were in med school we were in med school and we were trying to come up with a scoring like a point system just like all these other like medicine scores that yeah. we have with chads yeah. and all this other stuff i was trying to come uh -huh. up with a game score and we came close but it wasn't one that was satisfying so it was we need to go back to the we need to go back to the drawing board on that yeah we'll have to well look i I desperately hope to read in your up-to-date <laughs> article that you have a gain score because, hey, man, that's going to revolutionize things. Come out of what kind of calculator. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's, that'd be perfect. Yeah, if we have a calculator that makes it on MD Calc, I think we've I think we've made it. So yeah, we've made it absolutely. There's already a Feigenbaum constant. Uh, it's a physics <laughs> slash mathematical term, so I can't really use that. So I think it'll just have to be gains, and that's fine. That's fine. I'll just put mark after it's totally fine. Uh, it rolls off the tongue so beautifully as well. It really so. does. And I just want, you know, if I see gains in medical notes, I feel like I just, I've made it. Like, that's the <laughs> point, you know, we've, we've made it. Um, All right, I'm going to have to make it my goal this week to dictate a letter somewhere where I write gains. <laughs> spoke with three Z's. If you put three Z's in there, I'm <laughs> oh, man. Perfect. All right. Well, hey, Sham, I really have to thank you for joining us. This is uh, a start of uh, we're going to have some medical professionals on here. Our next one is a psychiatrist, so he's going to psychoanalyze your actual interview. Um, so you're just going to be <laughs> exposed to that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's but, okay, man. I already know that I'm really messed up. It's, yeah. it's just going to confirm. Yeah. <laughs> we'll send a copy to your parents. No, Inferiority uh, complex from his parents, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And now that we know that you're already more popular than we are since you were in uh, men's health, um, maybe we'll leverage your stardom to uh, to jump uh, to the next level. So, and hey, look, I haven't followed up on that, and I don't even know when it's going to be published. <laughs> but you know, someone did take the trouble to have the Skype consult with me, like a, a Skype interview with me. So there you go. It's out there somewhere. You might be the only rheumatologist in the world who squats 405, so... <laughs> you know that's actually, like literally I, I bet that is the case <laughs> is sean the strongest rheumatologist in the world that's gonna be his his subtitle for his article yeah, that's, no that's what's gonna be <laughs> i'm gonna i think when i go back and edit this yeah sean's the strongest rheumatologist in the world until proven otherwise so look listen folks if you know a rheumatologist who squats 406 don't tell us because honestly this is a great <laughs> it's a great yeah, i'm gonna have to take him or her out yeah, that, yeah. that's just not <laughs> send him shingles um, <laughs> perfect. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for thanks for joining us, Austin. It was great having you as well. We'll uh, I'll stitch this guy together. And uh, thanks for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Take care. All right. See you guys. All the best. <laughs>